This is the Best Insurance Law Podcast, brought to you by Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. Welcome to Best Insurance Law Podcast, the broadcast about timely and important legal issues affecting the insurance industry. I'm John Zuba, Managing Editor of Best Recommended Insurance Attorneys. We're pleased to have with us today attorney Michael Troisi. Mike is the leader of Rifkin Radler's Property Insurance Coverage Practice Group, which is part of Rifkin's overall insurance coverage group and one of the largest of its kind in the nation, representing the country's largest insurers. With 33 years of experience, Michael represents numerous commercial insurers in evaluating and litigating business interruption claims. Rivkin Radler has been retained by a large commercial insurance company as national coordinating counsel for all of its COVID-19 claims. The firm has also been retained by other insurers to represent their interest in COVID-related matters, including the defense of class action. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, John. Today's discussion is how COVID-19 is changing business interruption claims. And for our first question today, Mike, what are your general observations about COVID-19 business interruption litigation we have seen across the country? Well, we've definitely seen a pendulum swing, John, in from the beginning or the onset of the pandemic until now. At the beginning, we saw policyholder lawyers bringing suits and alleging the actual presence of the virus in the business or within the business. And those allegations were made in a very general and conclusory way, almost to say that the virus is everywhere and therefore it, it must be on our premises. I think that uh, those arguments were pretty much by and large rejected by most courts. Those arguments were conclusory and lacked any real substance or basis in fact and couldn't be proven. And therefore, those cases met with pretty swift dismissal. What I think we've seen now is we've seen a change over to uh, adopting the argument that uh, in order to overcome the direct physical loss requirement that's required and is the trigger of coverage in virtually every property insurance policy, in order to meet that challenge, what the policyholders uh, are now arguing is that the loss of use of the premises uh, is the uh, trigger of coverage, and that is their physical loss, that they either can't use the premises or the use of the premises has been diminished in a substantial way, and therefore they've been harmed uh, or damaged. And what we're seeing there as well is that the insurance industry, in the majority of cases, is prevailing uh, on motions to dismiss uh, those pleadings. So, and I think a little bit uh, later on uh, today, we'll get into uh, the nuts and bolts of that. The other thing that I think it's important to note about the state of the litigation right now is that early on, uh, policyholder lawyers attempted to establish a multi-district litigation or what we refer to as an MDL. And, you know, MDLs are are there to promote efficiency by centralizing cases that have common questions of, of fact and law uh, so that it could be consolidated into one district uh, before one judge. And uh, back in August, that attempt to uh, create an MDL was heard and was rejected. And pretty much because uh, the court found that the policies are all different, 
They contain slightly different language, which can lead to different interpretations. And of course, each policyholder is going to present a somewhat different set of facts uh, to bring to bear uh, and to decide whether or not uh, there is coverage under the policy. So uh, that effort failed on behalf of policyholders. And then there was an attempt to create MDLs that were specific to certain insurers, insurers who had a lot of cases in the hopper, so to speak, uh, involving COVID-19 business interruption claims. And uh, there, those were largely unsuccessful too, uh, with the exception of one uh, insurer society where an MDL was created. And that's pretty much the state of the litigation right now. So Michael, what arguments have policyholders advanced to meet the physical loss requirement? The uh, policy, in order to trigger a property insurance policy, and pretty much under any coverage, there must be direct physical loss of or damage to property. And essentially, what the policyholders are arguing is that the government orders, whether it's it bars them completely from the premises or simply diminishes uh, their ability to use their business premises, that that is their loss, uh, and uh, therefore that triggers coverage. And um, that has been met by an overwhelming majority of the courts by saying, no, that is just too strained an interpretation. It ignores uh, the words direct and physical, and the policy uh, and the underpinnings of property insurance itself which requires some type of demonstrable, tangible, physical damage to property, a fire, water damage, uh, you know, a car running into the building, some physical damage. And the case law uh, on that subject across the country pretty much is, is very much uh, in favor of the insureds, uh, of the insurers, I should say. Um, what the policyholders have also done is they've, they've seized on this language of physical loss of, meaning that, well, if you have direct physical loss of something, I've lost my premises, I can't use my premises, it's been diminished. The courts have said that is an absolute, you know, pretty much said that's an absolutely strained reading. Uh, and if you go to the dictionary, uh, you can't write physical, the word physical out of uh, this particular coverage grant. And therefore, uh, the courts have pretty much said, uh, no, this is this doesn't qualify as a physical loss. Um, and, and so that is an argument that the policyholders have, have used uh, to try to get coverage. They've been successful in a few jurisdictions, um, but overwhelmingly, uh, the courts have said have rejected that. Um, in, interestingly, in a case in the Southern District of New York, um, Judge Caproni, in a case called Social Life Against Sentinel, she summed it up by saying, um, look, um, you know, a virus uh, can damage your lungs. It can't damage your printing presses. And that quote got a lot of uh, play. But it was interesting that, you know, that has sort of been the theme um, uh, on the direct physical loss uh, argument. 
So have the courts confronted the question of whether or not there's been direct physical loss? Well, yes. And, and, you know, as I said, in most of these cases, they've said, you know, there has not been uh, direct physical loss. And what it, what it sort of does is it turns, uh, it sort of turns the equation around, you know, when that argument is made, Um, you know, the, the, the policyholder is required to demonstrate direct physical loss or damage to their property that results in a suspension of their business in order to qualify for business interruption coverage. Here, it's sort of they've flipped it around, and and many uh, courts have observed this, you know, by saying, um, you know, I've had a suspension of my business, and therefore I've been damaged. And what the courts have noted is it's purely economic in nature. This is purely an economic damage, uh, but it's not a physical damage. You have not uh, sustained an accidental direct physical loss. Mike, what arguments have policyholders advanced to address the virus exclusion? Yeah, so that's the real, the second hurdle that uh, obviously policyholders face, even if they get past the coverage grant, you know, and establishing uh, accidental direct physical loss of or damage to property, the damage has to be caused by a covered cause of loss. And then obviously they're faced with the virus exclusion. And as you may know, the virus exclusion uh, was adopted and included in response to the SARS virus outbreak uh, in you know early 2000s, around 2003 or 2004, I believe. And it's pretty broad, and it's um, you know has been ruled to be unambiguous in most cases. Uh, so in in these particular cases, um, some courts, when faced with a motion to dismiss, are simply going right to the virus exclusion and saying we don't really have to decide the coverage grant because it doesn't matter. Uh, the virus exclusion is clear, it's unambiguous, and we're going to enforce it. Um, what policyholders have attempted to argue, uh, and for the most part unsuccessfully, is that um, the, uh, the approximate cause of their loss is the government shutdown and not the virus. And you know, many courts have said, well, wait a minute, even if you take you know, an efficient proximate cause analysis of this, uh, what you find is, but for the virus, there would have been no order limiting or shutting down a business. So um, that argument really doesn't ring true. Also, many of the virus exclusions uh, contain language that says something to the effect of if the virus uh, causes a loss or damage either directly or indirectly. Here, I would argue it's directly, but um, you know, even if it's not directly, it it is excluded. And then, even some policies have what we call anti-concurrent causation language or ACC language, which will say that you know it doesn't matter. Uh, this loss is excluded if caused by a virus. And it doesn't matter the order in which uh, the sequence of events occurs that results in your loss. If virus was part of that sequence of events or the existence of the virus, uh, it is not going to be covered. So what we have seen is that um, the courts have taken a look at the virus exclusion and said, yeah, this this is um, unambiguous and applies to these losses. There was an outlier 
uh, down in the middle district of Florida, um, the Euro gynecology case, I believe it was against Sentinel. And uh, the court there ruled that the uh, exclusion uh, was somewhat ambiguous. But again, I believe the language in that was not the, if I remember correctly, I don't think it's, it's the typical ISO language. Uh, and again, that, that case was an outlier. Um, so um, pretty much the virus exclusion uh, has been upheld uh, by most of the courts. And how have the courts interpreted the virus exclusion? Well, like I said, they've, 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 they've taken a look at it and they've said that it is uh, unambiguous and that uh, it should apply uh, to these cases. And, you know, the courts have not uh, been receptive, you know, to the argument that it was not the virus uh, that caused the loss, but it was the government shutdown. Uh, and, you know, many of the courts even point out that, you know, the, the briefs in, su in support or in opposition to these motions to, the, to dismiss uh, point, you know, talk about the existence of the virus and the obvious uh, effects that it's had on businesses and everything. And but then on by the same token, argue later in the brief that, no, it wasn't the virus uh, that caused it. It was the government shutdown. So I think that, um, you know, again, it's a very tough road um, uh, for policyholders uh, to get over, you know, number one, the physical loss component of the coverage grant. And then number two, uh, the virus exclusion. Michael, what's the status of legislative efforts in various states to mandate that insurers pay business interruption claims? Yeah, so, you know, we saw that particularly at the beginning of the pandemic. We saw uh, several state legislatures try to introduce bills that would essentially rewrite the insurance policies or write out the virus exclusion and mandate that insurers essentially cover business interruption claims uh, that are submitted as a result of the COVID-19 virus. Um, that obviously, in, in, I can tell you that we're not aware as of this state of any state that has passed such legislation. I think a lot of them uh, have been stalled uh, in the state legislatures, New York included. Um, and I think that you know part of the reason for that is likely that it, it is well known that there will be a challenge to that based on the contracts clause to the U.S. Constitution, essentially prohibiting the government from interfering uh, or rewriting uh, a contract, you know, whether or not they can do that. And, and there, there are there have been cases where, um, you know, state governments have tried to do that. Um, and, you know, the courts engage in a, a balancing test. Uh, you know, as to whether or not the, the law proposed by or enacted by the state government it operates as a substantial impairment of a contractual relationship. Well, this one, you know, here they would be rewriting the contract and whether the law is drawn in an appropriate and reasonable way to advance a significant and legitimate public purpose. And so that that obviously would involve a balancing act, uh, you know, and would invite, I'm sure, very strenuous, uh, very uh, hard-fought litigation from the insurance industry. Uh, because obviously, this is not something they have underwritten for. It's not something they had planned for because they 
specifically tempted to write these types of losses out of their contracts. And I think probably the state governments are are aware of that. Uh, and uh, there's probably a lot of you know, debate still going on as to whether or not that would be a prudent course to take. Mike, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. That was Michael Troisi from the law firm Rifkin Radler, and special thanks to today's producer, Frank Lowinkle. And thank you all for joining us for Best Insurance Law Podcast. To subscribe to this audio program, go to our webpage, www.ams.com slash claims resource. If you have any suggestions for a future topic regarding an insurance law case or issue, please email us at lawpodcast.ams.com. I'm John Zuba, and now this message. Best Insurance Professional Resources features valuable insurance industry content, including searchable profiles of client-recommended insurance attorneys, adjusters, and expert service providers. Brought to you by AM Best, known worldwide as a respected source of insurance industry news and information. Visit ambest.com slash claims resource.